So if I ask you, how did you do that? That's system one. But then if I ask you, why did you do that? That's system two. So what I've learned is that as we engage people in discussions of the new and the disruptive, we have to start the persuasive experience with system one questions and system one comments for a person to kind of have a sense of familiarity and safety, because safety is where people uh, begin to relax and lean into the new. Hello and welcome to the Message Makeover podcast brought to you by the Latimer Group, the experts in persuasive communication. I'm Dan Cooney and I'm joined today by my former Broadcast.com and Yahoo colleague, Tim Sanders. Tim is the author of five books, including the New York Times bestseller, Love is the Killer App. He is a top-rated keynote speaker and CEO of Deeper Media. Tim credits much of his success to his high school days, where he was the captain of the debate team and then later in college, a national debate champion. Thanks for joining us today, Tim. Absolutely. My pleasure, Dan. It's been a while. I think the last time, one of the last times we saw each other was at a huge national Yahoo sales conference, circa 99 or 2000 in Arizona. Those were fun and different days. Those were different days completely. <laughs> they were, um, I always think of them as the halcyon days of early um, internet industry. So exciting times, nothing but Nothing but possibility and, and excitement. I started my days, uh, my career in politics, and there was a former attorney general from Oklahoma who said, be part of the action and passion of your times. And I felt 99 and 2000, the internet was a, was a pretty fun place to be. It was, it was. It was the center of the universe. And I feel like throughout my career, I've always gravitated to those places. So early 80s, coming out of grad school, I gravitated to the quality movement led by Dr. Edward Deming, mm. which had been going on for several years in Japan, um, a, a, a glutton for punishment uh, in the middle of the 1980s. I went to work as an early stage employee at Southwestern Bell Mobile, which was relaunching trunk phones as cellular phones. Uh -huh. And I got in on the ground floor of that. You know, that's when they used to be in briefcases that cost five grand and they didn't work. Yeah. Remember, remember I remember those, those days. I do. And, and somehow I found my way from there to Mark Cuban's startup, you know, audio video on the web, 1997, when it also didn't work. Um, so I feel like for my entire career, I've always tried to gravitate to those places uh, of pioneering change. Uh, that's great. And, and talk about the beginning for you. You wrote about In Love is the Killer App. You wrote about the green shoots of your current career. And... Uh, I thought that was interesting. Share, share with our audience how, that, how you came to be who you are. I think the first time I, quote, spoke in public was when I recited every book of the Bible in front of our small Baptist church at the age of six. And when I ripped from generations to revelations and then I kind of heard the amens come up from the audience, I was like, I like this. <laughs> I like this. You were hooked. And... And then later, I got the reputation as, quote, the little reverend, because I would summarize this morning's sermon on the bus as we took the kids home uh, in bite-sized, you know, nine-year-old uh, perspective. And I just started to develop this habit of trying to um, speak where people gathered. And um, later, it led me to be a natural to join the speech team and then the debate team. I, I thought I was going to go to law school, but Dan, I decided instead to join a reggae band. Yeah. 
course. After right. after grad school instead, or after college instead. Um, but I always gravitated to this area of public speaking. And even at broadcast.com, that was a huge role for me. So as you know, Cuban did not generally make presentations to prospects and clients. He focused on the bigger opportunities, yep. say like giving a keynote at the National Association of Broadcasters. So I was one of the the, the presentation folks that when someone you know came to town, I'd give them a presentation about the future of the internet or the future of audio and video on the internet. And I started to build up my chops. And it was during one of those presentations to a group of Dallas real estate agents that I was introduced to Jan Miller, very famous literary agent um, who had discovered uh, Stephen Covey, Tony Robbins, Phil McGraw, amongst others. And she walked up to me at the end of the presentation and she was like, Dalink, I think you've got a book in you. <laughs> and that's where the conversation started that led to the publication a couple of years later of Love is the Killer app um, while I was still on um, the Yahoo executive. Yeah, well, I, re I remember uh, noticing you very quickly when I started at broadcast.com and uh, you were very kind to help me with a couple of deals. And uh, after a lot of struggles with, uh, with uh, Lee Glenn and Stan Woodward, we got a couple of good ones uh, over the finish line. So always grateful to you for that. But um, at the, you know, the, those were those were awesome days. We were we were we were a tribe at broadcast.com. Yeah. It felt like we weren't just collaborative. We were absolutely supportive of each yeah. other. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. You know, um, good segue. So you get into Lovers the Killer app. Um, explain to me what a love cat is. I, I couldn't I couldn't believe more in the concept. But explain what a love cat is. So in the book, Love is the Killer app, I talk about the idea that for many of us, we're conflicted. We want to be successful, but we don't want to achieve our success at the expense of other people, right? right? So I want to be a rock star, but I don't want to be a jerk. Yep. And it's been kind of a, a, a mental conflict that we all kind of walk around with. And when I was working at broadcast.com, I discovered that there was a type of business person who found his or her success by helping other people become successful. They showed the love and they extended that prior to receiving anything in return. In fact, Dan, they helped promote other people's growth, whether it was mentorship, whether it was collaboration, without any expectations. And people would scratch their head and wonder, what's in it for him? Yep. How can she continue to behave this way and not get taken advantage of? I refer to that type of person as a love cat. And the reason I say that is because not only are they very generous, and not only are they very collaborative with other people they're also very good at requiring those they help to pay forward and to become increasingly judicious uh, about making sure um, they don't help just takers yeah. Yeah. that they actually foster a, a culture of givers wherever they work and so so the phrase love cat came to me uh, from a lyric uh, from an old new wave band the cure remember the yeah cure? that's and they had they had a song called Love Cats. Absolutely. And when I remember, I was I was Let's have tea together or working, something like that. That's one of the lyrics. Yeah. So I was working on I was working on a description uh, of people like uh, I'll give you an example, Herb Kelleher. Yeah. At Southwest Airlines. Um, if, if anybody knows Herb, they know that he was all about the love. That's why the stock ticker for Southwest was LUV. Mm -hmm. He was incredibly supportive and promotional thought for his people, but you don't cross him. 
So if you were a customer and you were a jerk to the attendant, he'd stick up for you and tell you never to fly the airline. If you wrote a complaint about an attendant that he thought was unfair, he'd write you back and say you're wrong. Mm. And it reminded me of the Robert Smith lyric from The Cure in the song Love Cats where he said, we move like cagey tigers, but no two can get closer than this. And I thought about that balance that, that a person like Herb has. And it was what I was trying to help people achieve in their life. I want you to be generous, but I want you to remain optimistic about generosity. So pick the right people. Don't just mentor them on how to be successful. Mentor them about how to also be generous and require it of them. And that's really what the Love Cat's all about. I, I love it. I love it. I have a personal a philosophy, uh, a philosopher that I really like. His name is Forrest Church. He was the son of the, uh, the late senator. And he talks about the way to measure a life is how much love you give away. So this is the business mm -hmm. version of that. And uh, it's, right. it's, 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 it's a And great... just to clarify, when, when I talk about love, and I know that you, you, you dial into this too, I had to define, I call it business love, but I had to define what I mean. Yeah. When I say love in the context of our professional right, career and, you know, in looking for a general definition of love, the not romantic type, but the kind of love we have for our friends and, 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 and family and colleagues, for example, that we've known our whole life. Milton Meyerhoff uh, had written a great philosophical book called On Caring, and he defined love or for that matter, um, charity um, as uh, as the, the selfless promotion of the growth of the other. Pretty, I love pretty that, great. Because right? that's what a parent, yeah, what a parent does yeah. for their kids, right? But then I dialed in on the word selfless, and I said, you know, in the, in the context of our business life, we also have a charter to keep the lights on, right? And to take care of the organization like it was a baby that can't take care of itself for the sake of all of us and all of our livelihoods. So in the context of work, I believe it's a little bit different definition than Milton's. It is this. It is the intelligent sharing of your intangibles to promote growth and success of people you do business with. Right. And those intangibles are your knowledge, your network of relationships, and your human compassion. That's what I mean. That's what Jerry Maguire meant. Right when he said, show me the love. No, it's just it's just a great way to go through life. And um, it's the golden rule uh, extrapolated out a little bit further. Um, it makes all the sense in the world. You know, um, what we do at the Latimer Group, we're about purposeful, persuasive communication. And one of the things that just struck me when you were talking about this idea of the things that you were doing on the back of the bus in terms of trying to distill and summarize the sermon, what an incredible skill we have now. It used to be back, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was the person who could come to the table with all the data because data was hard to find. My dad was great in the library. He knew where the microfiche, how to get everything. He knew every kind of periodical. That was the skill that was valued. Now the value comes from distilling complex subjects and making them simple. And one of the stories from the book that I really liked is the way you were able to talk to Stanley Marcus of the famed Neiman Marcus uh, company and how you were able to explain to him a new concept based on his knowledge of how he had, had worked with his business for so many years. And I wonder if you could share that story with us. I had a wonderful opportunity to have several lunches with the late, great Stanley Marcus Jr., son of the founder of Neiman Marcus. He was in his 80s. He lived in Dallas back in the yep. day. 
And uh, we ended up doing a, a live broadcast for Neiman's around their big book, the Christmas book they do. You know, right. where they sell planes and other expensive items. Fun book. And so he took he, he took an interest in me and uh, and the internet about what was going on in digital marketing. So I was sitting around. I, I remember one lunch I was talking to him about a book I had just read um, called Net Worth by McKinsey's John Hagel, and it was about the rise of the intermediaries. These are corporations, say like American Express, that we entrust with our information, and that information becomes the greatest currency. And Mr. Marcus uh, was an enthusiast of um, CRM technology anyway. Yep. And he, he really dialed into this idea, and he was telling me about the days, oh, the days he longed for, uh, where the associated Neiman's had that three by five card box behind the counter. And on each three by five card was um, preferences of customers that came in all the time. They could be color preferences, size preferences, but they also included other information like the name of the kids, their birthdays, what sport they played, that type of thing. And he wished that that type of personalized service exist. And I helped him understand that he was likely the great grandfather of CRM technology <laughs> right, as existed. Right. I mean, the three by five card it was no different than the original punch card of the IBM computer. It was the best at the time technology. But since then, I said, a scalable form of technology based on zeros and ones and not paper and pen had come along that was able to dramatically expand the number of preferences and attributes we could assign to an individual customer, allowing us not only to strike up a rich conversation that gained their trust, but more importantly, to customize how we served them and to help save them time as they searched for adjacent solutions. And I said, you know, it's as if every single one of your associates would have in the palm of their hand 80% of the relevant attribute information about every person that walked in, even those that weren't frequent shoppers. And that kind of blew his mind. And I said, you know, we, we long for old technology, but I long for improvement. And it was really a buy-in for him by understanding that the existing technology at the time was based on his technology. It was just more scalable. And it was designed to produce more value for the customers and not just the sales associates. And I think that's where he really got it with respect to buying in to saying this is exciting. And he became a voracious reader about a lot of things to do with the Internet from that point forward. I love. I mean, it's a classic example of having and, and this is a very difficult skill. Not many people have it, but of seeing something through another person's lens. You took a belief that he had. Uh, and you got him to see into the future through the strength of that old belief. So, you know, that is exactly. Yeah, we, 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 yeah. exactly. We, we had to look at things through his lens and appreciate what he did and appreciate his emotional response, which many people had at the time, that I preferred the old technology. This new technology is, you know, obliterating or making obsolete what I hold dear. Right. And I was like, no, it's not. It's improving. It's empowering it. It's making yeah. it. It's making it more scalable. Um, it's making it more valuable to everyone, especially you know the customer, which I think this was all about in the first place. I think that was really important. And to this day, as we sell people innovations of whatever, self-driving cars, you name it, artificial intelligence, automation, bots running your customer service on Facebook, whatever we're talking about, we have to remember 
that that the innovative technology is not making something obsolete. It is not replacing something. It is improving something for the sake of the customer. And I think that once we understand that, we can become less threatened by it and buy into it. And, and the reason this is important, Dan, is that in the world of persuasion, which you know I am just a huge fan yeah. of researching this, FBI negotiators would tell you there is system one thinking and system two thinking. System one thinking is safe. It is familiar. It's something we can grasp and engage with. However, system two thinking is confrontational. It, it, it creates anxiety. It's something that actually repels us. So if I ask you, how did you do that? That's system one. But then if I ask you, why did you do that? That's system two. Mm -hmm. So what I've learned is that as we engage people in discussions of the new and the disruptive, we have to start the persuasive experience with system one questions and system one comments for a person to kind of have a sense of familiarity and safety because safety is where people uh, begin to relax and lean into the new. I love it. I'm, I I don't know if that came from um, part of the Chris Voss book, but uh, from yes, I'm exactly referring yeah, to that. He's, I, well, there's two books I'm referring yeah, to. I'm referring to Daniel Kahneman's um, book too, Voss's, um, the System One. Never split the difference. Yeah. And the other book, which I think even punctuates this more, even though the Chris Voss book is one of my favorite reads in the last three years. Yeah. Never never split the difference. There's another book which is my favorite read in the last few years, and it's a book titled Ask More. Okay, and it's by Frank Frank Senzo, an award-winning Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, and it's about the power of questions. And so, what what Senzo and he quotes a lot of other FBI negotiators in his book too. Um, what he really points out too is that we have to make sure that we're asking the right type of questions that lead a conversation along instead of shutting it down. Yeah, and when and now just to tell um, our listeners that when you say it's one of your best favorite reads. Uh, the last uh, year or two, uh, you have to understand, folks, that uh, Tim has one of the most voracious reading habits that uh, we know about in the business world of books, the business world of books. So uh, it's a high compliment. I'm a reader. Yeah. I'm a reader. I try to read at least a book a week. Um, let's say I read a book a week. Let's say it's, it's only like 50 a year, which, by the way, I've met people who read more. Um, but I read a cliff note. I, 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 before our call, I was just sending off an email to an author to ask him to clarify some points from his book. I, I, I do that all the time. I recommend to people that they do that. Um, authors are actually lonely people that love to hear from their readers. But um, I read a lot. And um, one of the things I would say is that I, in the beginning of my voracious reading uh, habits, um, I found that many books that I bought and was enthusiastic to read were actually barticles. I call those books that should have been articles. Yeah. yeah. And past the introduction, it was all padding, and I had to put them down. And you know, I'd have to read. Let me see. So I buy four books. I put one down, finish three. Mm -hmm. And as time goes by, I'm getting better at it. So I pretty much finish the ones I read because you have to do research on a book before you commit to reading a book. You need to make sure that that book really does solve a problem for you or someone that you care about. And that that book um, really does warrant um, the five to twenty hours that it takes to read and study. Yeah, uh, Tim, let's turn back a little bit towards persuasion. And uh, I loved the quote, the, the Nick Morgan quote: um, "The only reason to give a speech is to change the world." At the Latimer Group, we yeah. say that great communication skills can change the world. 
And the reason why I love my job, one of the reasons I love my job is that I believe that to my core, that it can change mm -hmm. the world. But tell, tell me what mm -hmm. that means to you. So that book was originally titled Working the Room. It's been re-released. It's called Give Your Speech, Change the World by author Nick Morgan. Mm -hmm. He runs a great blog about public speaking. The blog is called publicwords.com. Mm -hmm. He has my, been my coach, uh, helped me rethink about everything I think about on, on persuasion. Here's what he says. Great presenters move the audience from A to B. The audience walks into the room with a certain perspective and a certain set of practices. They walk out of the room with an adjusted perspective that leads to new practices. And what Nick taught me early is as a, as a, as a speaker on the lecture circuit, my career success does not come down to standing ovations or great survey remarks. My success comes down to changing behavior in a way that is predictable and solves a problem. Mm -hmm. So when I get hired to come in and speak, and these days I'm on the lecture circuit talking about the power of collaborating outside of our comfort zone. When I'm brought in, I am brought in to challenge their existing perspectives that the lone wolf can get it done and to change their practices from collaborating as a last resort to collaborating as a daily practice. Yeah. That's how I measure my own success. And so as a result, I have to think about persuasion in terms of understanding their perspective and valuing it, being able to introduce a challenging perspective and proving it out, so to speak, not just with stats, but more importantly, stories, and then providing people actionable advice where there's some low-hanging fruit they can pick right after they hear me speak that begins the momentum of change. Right. And that's how I think about persuasion. It's all about changing behavior, not just changing minds. Yeah. In, in the world that we have today, there's just so much. Uh, it, we call it the very noisy world. Uh, and we don't have to go into mm. it. Everyone knows the stats on how we are all crushed. The corporate warrior, you know, the six to eight meetings, the email, all of the incoming pressures, uh, the collaboration. Um, but... What do you think is the number one challenge that, that the, in the corporate world for, with regard to persuasion? Number one challenge is to break through Broadbent's filter. For those of you on the Google, Broadbent is spelled B-R-O-A-D-B-E-N-T, Dr. Donald Broadbent. United Kingdom uh, academic professor, researcher, he postulated years ago that the human brain adapts to its surrounding, sometimes defensively, and that our brain has been building a dense attention filter based on the number of influence attempts made on us every day. Right. And that as more influence attempts made on us, read my email, listen to me, et cetera, our filters will become so dense, it will be a miracle anyone gets through. Right. And I believe today when you look at it, Seth Godin, uh, former Yahoo, also a, a marketing researcher, he, he says every day um, 500 attempts are made for our attention. And so as a result, I think that people listen to a very small amount of what comes into their uh, influence range. They believe a very small amount and they retain a very small amount. Their mind now acts like random access memory. It shuts down every night and is erased. 
So it is a miracle. We as leaders actually move people to action. It's why we have to repeat ourselves so much. We can't break through the filter. But one of the things that Dr. Brad Broadbent pointed out that I'll tell you is that he said, no matter how dense the filter, there'll always be a workaround, if you will, a velvet rope that bypasses the filter. And that is the amygdala, the emotional seat of the brain that is 35 times more powerful than the logical seat. It hijacks our thinking. When a person makes that emotional connection, they get our attention. And that's why I believe that the shortest distance between two professionals and an urgent message is a warm connection. Right. But I would say, Dan, that one of the things we've seen over the last few years, it started with Tony Robbins, but today it's popularized by all the books with the F word in the title, like The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F, yeah. or Gary Vayner, Vaynerchuk's you know, F-bomb-laden. Mm. The reason people use profanity like that, especially that word, is because it directly jumps at the amygdala and startles you. Tony Robbins does this a lot. He's the guy who started this. If you listen to – if you watch a I Am Not Your Guru or you actually go to a Tony Robbins event, it is F this, F that. And he knows as an NLP expert the reason he does that because it shocks us out of that filter stance and it gets our attention. I am not a fan of that. You can talk to me forever and read all my speeches. You'll never see profanity in them. I think – and I'm not being critical of Tony. I'm just being critical of this approach. To me, that's just lazy. I think we can be more sophisticated in our attempts to persuade people. You can create a negative emotional experience to get attention. You can create a positive emotional experience to gain attention. I try to create positive ones by talking about things that are familiar and resonant and using stories, real stories with real structure um, to, to really reach people at an emotional level. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with you 100%. I've never heard of uh, the broadband uh, filter um, my own personal feeling is that the F word will just become the filter will catch up with that as well. And soon that word, I, I believe it already has less power to reach our emotional. I think so. I think you're but right. I, I think that we will become desensitized we be, to that. We too. become a little. We'll never become desensitized to stories. Though. Right. It's just in our DNA. DNA is the stories cause us to suspend belief, and in this case, set the filter aside. Right. And and the story piece is something that has been programmed in us for every civilization going back tens of thousands of years. So we are programmed to attend to story. Um, Tim, I, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us. I, we always end with the key coaching takeaway. What what would you tell our listeners uh, in the world of persuasion? Give, give us a key coaching takeaway. So um, it comes from Dale Carnegie, who, um, before he wrote How to Win Friends and Influence People, coached men at the YMCA in the 1920s in New York City. And he always said that you will develop and accomplish more by developing a sincere interest in people instead of trying to get people interested in you. Yep. So, so persuasion starts with empathy. So if you want to make a connection with people, you need to understand what are their needs? What are their unmet needs? What is their perspective about these needs? And, and, and where can we respect their perspective, but in some cases, change it. 
but we don't start with how do we need to change people's thinking. We start with what are they thinking and how can we see it from their point of view yep. so that we can embrace it and talk to them in a respectful, resonant way. Um, and I say this coaching tip, develop a sincere interest instead of trying to get people interested in you. Um, because it's something I live every day. Like, like when we hang up, I'm actually getting on a phone call with a meeting planner about an event I'm doing in eight weeks. And the whole point of that call is for me to really wrap my head around what those 500 people are thinking and segment it by different roles so that I can begin to write that speech based on empathy instead of writing that speech based on my expertise. Right. Because you want to be of service to them. You can't connect with people that you don't respect. Yeah. You just can't. You, can't. you always say you can't lead people that you don't love yeah. because they know. And you can't speak to an audience from the top of the mountain. you got to speak to them eye to eye. And they, they know whether you've done the work to actually challenge their perspective. Absolutely. They can see that immediately. And, and the, the human brain the is really things. good at telling whether someone is authentic or not because 20,000 years ago, it might mean, the, might mean the difference between staying alive and not staying alive. So we, it's why we shake hands, right? To this day, as if to prove to each other, I am not armed. Right, exactly. Tim, I can't uh, thank you enough. It's been a pleasure. It's always, always was fun to work with you. Um, I've admired you for a long time, and I'm, I'm really grateful well, you. to you for taking the time to, to join us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great to talk to you, Dan. I appreciate it. Thanks. Well, that does it for this edition of The Message Makeover. We thank our whole team at the Latimer Group, including Dean Brenner, Whitney Sweeney, Amy Fenelosa, Hannah Morris, and our producers, Brett Slater and Kendra Gukas. We love audience questions, so tweet those questions to us at the Latimer Group. We'll be listening well for them. Until then, see you next time on The Message Makeover. The Message Makeover podcast is presented by the Latimer Group, the experts in persuasive communication, corporate training, and executive coaching delivered with impact. For more information on the Latimer Group and for more episodes of the Message Makeover podcast, look for us on iTunes, Google Play, and online at thelatimergroup.com.